Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan, and uh, I'm always just grateful to be here with you, and I mean that. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be able to gather with a community that's become good friends uh, and such strong supporters of us personally. It's a blessing to be serving and uh, just frankly working in a church where I feel so at home and, um, and uh, like a part of things uh, on a relational level. Um, if this is your first time here with us today, I hope that you feel right at home. I hope you feel embraced into this community. Uh, our hope is to gather together um, to, to call ourselves to worship with the music, right? To, to, we're coming from a, a hundred different directions. There's a variety of things on our minds and concerns and realities and challenges. And the hope is that we can come together under some common purpose. And then, and then my hope for this piece is that we are able to offer something that's encouraging, something that's challenging, something that's helpful, uh, that's not new, but that's an old truth hopefully applied to our current situation in a way that's actually uh, helpful moving forward. So I'm so glad that you've joined us today, and, and just I'm really praying that this will be a powerful morning. Uh, raise your hand if you like a Bible. Um, thanks, Alan and Nick, Bob, for passing those out. You're welcome to take these home if you don't have a Bible. Um, and uh, I'll be looking at a couple of different passages today in John's Gospel and in this letter from Paul called Galatians. And then if you're on the end of an aisle, would you take a basket and hand it down? A lot of new folks in the last few weeks, which has been really exciting. Uh, if you would like to hand off your contact information to us, you can fill out a card. Uh, put it in the basket later in the morning as we pass the basket around. And that'll just put you, uh, give us your name and, and email address, and that'll put you on the newsletter list and uh, enable us to welcome you a little bit better. So that is an option for you. All right. Great. Thanks to all of you who came early to set up, all of you who are uh, staying late to tear down, and those of you who are serving even now. Just grateful for all of you guys. So it was the day after the election, and I gathered with a large group of Christians, and at the beginning of the gathering, the leader made reference to the previous night's election results, and the, uh, immediately the reaction in the room was cheers of celebration. And uh, after the meeting, I boarded a plane, I flew to another state in another part of the country, and I gathered there with another large group of Christians. And at the beginning of the meeting, the leader made reference to the previous night's results, and immediately the reaction in the room was groans of despair. <laughs> it's the same day, same faith tradition, two totally different reactions. I worshiped God, and I heard the teachings of Jesus proclaimed in the morning, I worshipped God and I heard the teachings of Jesus proclaimed in the evening. But because I had never seen committed Christians who loved God disagree so deeply, disagree so drastically on politics, you know, on which public policies were helpful, on which public policies were harmful, this was a really memorable day for me. And, and more than anything that I heard on this day, it was what I experienced that made it so memorable. It was what I experienced that I think shaped me. See, I was only 22 years old when this happened. The date was Wednesday, November 9th, 1994. It was a day after the election, the first midterm election of Bill Clinton's first uh, four years, an election that some called the Republican Revolution, in which the Republican Party gained just a ton of, uh, eight seats in the Senate, 54 seats in the House, 10 new governor 
rolls. The results were largely seen by good news by the students gathered for chapel at Wheaton College where I spent the morning. And the same results were largely seen as bad news by leaders of inner city churches and ministries gathered for the Christian Community Development Association's conference in Baltimore where I spent that evening. I wasn't sure what to do with that. The experience, I think, really disrupted a relatively simple political position that I had and understanding. Um, I thought this view was right and this view was wrong and most of the people that I respected agreed with me <laughs> or I agreed with them. And, and then I met a bunch of other leaders and pastors and ministers in a different context facing different challenges and I respected them too but they thought very differently than I did. So here's the question I want to address this morning. How do we live with one another in Christian community when we agree on A and B and C, but we disagree on X, Y, and Z? Most of us here, uh, this is just a guess, but it's an informed guess, most of us agree that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to reveal the love of God for humanity. We're, most of us are on the same page about that. Most of us here probably share a high degree of respect and um, admiration for the life and the teachings of Jesus. So much so that many of us have uh, given our life to follow Jesus and his teachings. Most of us here probably embrace the Ten Commandments as a basic ethical standard. Most of us probably see the, the great commandment, love God, love people, as our, a summary of our, our big picture kind of calling. We're probably largely in agreement on a whole lot of things, but we probably disagree on a whole lot of things as well. Uh, we probably disagree on political issues. We, we likely have different views on how to handle, manage money. Uh, I'm sure that we disagree on a variety of things as it relates to raising children. The use or not of technology, when's the right time to uh, let that begin, what kinds of ways are appropriate to discipline a kid, uh, whether attending a public school is the best choice, whether educating at home is right, whether or not it's good or wrong to vaccinate. We come from a variety of different backgrounds. Different views, different family rules, different expectations. I mean, just think about this morning. There, there are dozens of churches, dozens of Christian churches that essentially believe the same thing this church believes that you drove past this morning in order to come here. And you've all made the same choice to be here this morning, to worship here, to make this your church home. And yet, even though you're in agreement on that, the person sitting next to you, you're in your agreement with the person sitting next to you on that issue, you're probably in disagreement with the person sitting next to you on a whole host of other things, maybe financial issues or family issues or political issues or what you should eat for Thanksgiving. And the person sitting next to you might be your spouse. So this is a question, I think, that really affects us on all levels, not just following a divisive uh, presidential election. So you may choose to apply this politically this morning. You may choose to say, I'm just going to hear this as words for my family this morning. We agree <clears throat> on A, B, and C, but we disagree on X, Y, and Z, maybe L, M, N, O, and P. <laughs> so how do we share life? How can we be members of one community when there's so much disagreement? I think, I think there's three options. The first is the most common. We could just avoid the issues that we don't agree on. 
We could just choose not to talk about them. We could just look the other way when we can tell, oh, this is coming up. We can just pretend like we don't see it. My grandmother taught me that there are some things that just aren't polite to talk about, right? <laughs> and we're just not going to talk about those things, she said. And I remember one Thanksgiving still where somebody chose to talk about those things, and it didn't end very well. It was an uncomfortable situation. And so in order to keep the peace, even though it's a really shallow, superficial kind of peace that we're keeping in this situation, if you and I are in the same family, you and I are in the same church, and we discover that we disagree on something, well, we'll probably just avoid the topic, right? We'll probably just look the other way. And we'll just sort of whisper to the person that maybe agrees on us on a lot of things, well, you know, Tina and I, we just don't see things the same, so we're just not going to talk about that, right? Just happened to pull your name out of that. Yeah. So a second way we could deal with disagreement in community, whether it's in the family or whether it's in the church, is we could just leave. We could just leave the community. Uh, when avoid, and this happens. Don't think this sounds extreme. When avoiding a tough topic in a relationship doesn't work anymore, some will choose to abandon the relationship. We disagree, so we're splitting. Uh, I was just talking to a guy this last week who basically explained his divorce after 20 years of marriage in terms like this. We just didn't agree on things anymore. We just didn't see things the same way anymore. And so uh, it was time to go our separate ways. He explained it very casually, very lightly. Now, we, we, we kind of frame it as, well, well we want to be with like-minded folks, which, of course, feels good, of course, you know, uh, sounds good. But let me, let me point out that this, let's be with like-minded folks. You see how that's kind of a dead-end street? Do you see how that's a forever temporary situation, being with like-minded folks? So, in other words, we leave one community because we don't agree on things to join another community which thinks more like I think but then we find new disagreements in this new community. That's what happens, right? And then the cycle continues. And this is why groups are forever splitting. This is why, why the church splits. This is why nonprofit organizations and service organizations split. This is why families split. Uh, we just finished uh, youth football season. And at, you know, it's fun. There is some level of community that gets established when you play a sport because it's intense and there's a season and you're seeing the same people all the time. You're picking up your kids at the same places. You're sitting with the same people at the football games in our case. Um, so some sort of community gets established, but it's a really easy kind of community because all you have to do to be a part of this community is cheer for the same team. That's all, that's all you have to do and you're in. That's your whole purpose of being there. Just, let's just cheer together. It's like entry level, super easy. You don't have to serve each other. You don't have to forgive each other. You don't have to eat together. You don't have to love one another. None of those basic things that families have to do, that churches have to do. But even in this simple little entry level youth football community, there were disagreements that led to avoidance and abandonment, right? Because we just can't seem to pull it off. All we have to do is cheer for the same team. That's all we have to do, right? But still there are disagreements, and people couldn't deal with them, so they chose to look the other way or to just leave. This is sad. And more than sad, if I could be really frank, it's pitiful. It's pitiful how bad we are at bringing any kind of resolution to disagreement. It's pitiful how incapable we are of actually talking about things in, in, in situations in which we disagree with one another. I mean, relationships are full of disagreements, are they not? 
So if your toolbox for dealing with disagreement includes only two tools, and that is avoid the issue or abandon the relationship, what hope do you have for any real relationships? What kind of capacity are you bringing to the table for any sort of hope to be able to be at peace with somebody? How are you ever going to work out a disagreement? How are you ever hoping to resolve anything, endure a relationship that lasts or resolve through any kind of conflict? Um, what depth of peace can you really ever hope to experience? What strength of peace can you hope to be able to share with others with whom you disagree? So when we agree on A, B, and C, but we disagree on X, Y, and Z, that there's a third option. There's a third option. Uh, we could love. We could love. Avoiding is pretending. It's totally unproductive. It leads to shallow relationships. Abandoning erodes community, it breaks family, it smashes trust. Christians have always been called to love. This, friends, this is our place in politics. It's to love. This is our role in relationships. It's always our role in relationships, to love. This is how we, this is how we deal with disagreements. We love. The teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul are just saturated with this message. You just can't get away from it. Let me give you a few examples. At the Last Supper, Jesus instructs his disciples, saying, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a, Jesus says, a command, right? It's not an option. And he, and he gives this command after, do you remember what he's just done? He's just washed his disciples' feet, okay? He's just shared the Last Supper, the uh, Passover meal with them, in which he has taken bread, blessed it, broken it, and given it to them and said, this is my body, I'm giving it for you. The next day he's going to be crucified on the cross. So this is not love as emotion. Jesus is not talking about love as sentiment. He's talking about love in action. He's talking about love that does something. The Apostle Paul, another example, he puts it this way to the Christians in Galatia. He says, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Interesting phrase, the family of believers. The Greek literally says, those who belong to the household of faith. Or it can also be translated, the house of conviction. This is in the same letter where Paul says, uh, the fact that people are in Christ matters more than their race or their culture. The fact that people are in Christ matters more than whether they're a slave or a free person. The, the fact that somebody is in Christ matters more than their gender. Listen, not because Paul is naive about the very real differences and the very emotional disagreements that exist in the church, but simply because this is the church. This is the point, right? A, the church is a collection of folks, different people who disagree on a lot of things but hold one thing in common, who have one common conviction, and that is the love for Jesus. So in other words, there's a lot of things that we, a lot of differences that we have, and those differences matter. I'm not saying they don't matter, but there is one thing that we hold in common, and that's, that needs to matter more. That just simply, that just simply needs to matter more. 
and that is the love for Jesus. The church is the house of one conviction, and that one conviction is that Jesus is Lord. And because of that, we are called to love one another through all the disagreements. It's a matter of prioritizing the importance of issues, frankly. Um, and it's a challenge, of course. But we're, we're a, a family, a, a common family. We're a, a house of, of one conviction. In other words, to use the earliest Christian creeds that we talked about last week, if we agree that Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not Lord, and I'm not Lord, Jesus is Lord. If we agree on that, and we agree that Jesus saves, okay, the state doesn't save, the state is not the solution, I'm not my own Savior, Jesus saves, then we are invited to experience this reality that's called the peace of Christ. The, the reality of a deep peace, it's not a peace that's rooted in fear and control. It's a peace that's rooted in the grace of God that's extended to everybody through Christ. That's why your view of what happens on the cross is so important. Is this for some people? Or is this for everybody? It's a really important question. They say, well, it's just a theological argument people in college talk about. No, actually, it's not. It's a really practical thing because if this is just for some people, why do I have to agree with them? Or why do I have to get along with them? Why do I have to be at peace with them? If this happens for all people, then absolutely affects the, the depth of the calling to peace that I, have, that I am given as a Christian. The reality of a deep peace, not rooted in fear, but in the grace of God, is what I'm invited to experience, and not just to experience, but then to serve as an ambassador of that peace. This is what I have to share. Peace of Christ, rooted in the grace of God, is what we have to offer others. That's the best gift we have to offer others. Jesus tells this to his disciples. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is what we have to offer, right? We have to offer this demonstration of a new way of living. This is how people know. You who are Jew and you who are Greek and you're in the same church, right? You who are a slave and you who are a slave owner and you're in the same church, Right? You who are male and female in the same church, the same family of belief, the same household of faith. Now, of course, you can imagine this has always been hard. This is hard, hard, and it's always been hard. Christians loving Christians was a problem in the first century. And Christians loving Christians is a problem in the 21st century. Christians loving non-Christians was a challenge in the first century, though I have to say that the record is profoundly powerful as to how well they did that, how well the Christian church loved people who were not a part of the Christian church. Christians loving non-Christians in the 21st century is still a challenge. And I think painfully and regretfully, our record or our reputation, at least in this culture, seems to have suffered on that account. But for those of you this morning uh, who are courageous enough to say, I, I will not be satisfied with avoidance, and I am not going to tolerate abandonment. I want to love. I want to embrace this Christian call to love. I want to be able to uh, allow my community, my family, my church, and my relationship with others to be governed at the core by this desire to love. If you're interested in moving in that direction, then let me just offer a couple of ideas, two ideas, about how to love those who are just so clearly wrong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> how to love those, well, I was glad, that was a joke. 
how to love those with whom we disagree, right? How to love those with whom we disagree, both in our community and out of our community. Or maybe better said, here's one idea about how to experience the peace of Christ in the church, and then I'll offer a second idea about how to experience the peace of God or extend and share the peace of God with those who don't consider themselves part of the community of Christ. First, the ex to experience the peace of Christ within the church, even though the church is full of all kinds of folks who disagree on a whole lot of things, it is critical, friends, that we rise above the rhetoric. We've got to rise above the rhetoric. It's, it's really easy, especially during election seasons, to get all washed up in the words, to get all washed up in the emotions. And the challenge is to rise above it. I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story uh, that I've never shared with you before. Um, once, I was home from college, and, um, and I was visiting home, and I went to see my baby sister play a junior high girls basketball game. And I don't know, I must have brought some real sense of frustration into the experience. I don't know what my problem was, but I clearly had a problem. Because uh, what I remember is doing something that was very uncharacteristic of me. I just started chirping at the ref. I was just on the ref. I was going to be that guy at that game. Um, he was making terrible calls that was totally disgraceful. My sister's a really aggressive person. She was then. She's still pretty, she had an amateur boxing career. She's that, she's, she's tough. Um, <laughs> And at the point in time, she's 13 years old, she's playing basketball, every time she even comes near an opposing player, she gets a whistle. And it's just blowing me up. I'm just totally fired up about it. He's not letting her play. He's, so I start yelling at the ref. Okay, yelling at the ref always makes you look stupid. Okay, it just always does. Um, being the college kid in the college sweatshirt, visiting his, own, his old junior high, <laughs> in this little mini gym, where there's like 30 people in attendance, almost all of which are parents, and yelling at the ref. That makes you look really, really stupid. Really, really stupid. But I kept doing it. Everybody could see me and everybody could hear me. For some reason, I was unaware of that. All I could think about was how bad the ref was and how mad I was getting. That's all I could think about, that is, until another guy from the other side of the little mini court, I think he was a parent, he started yelling at me. So now the game was on, and I left the ref, and I went after him. And we start chirping back and forth, and it gets personal, and it gets insulting, and it gets ridiculous, yeah, and uncomfortable. Here's what was so weird about it, though. I didn't, I didn't realize how ridiculous I looked. I didn't realize how ridiculous I was acting until I got out of the gym. It was like the air in there was poisonous or something to me. I got out of the gym. I'm walking to the car, and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh my gosh, I, I can't, as at this point my head clears, and what 10 minutes ago had been so important, I was so emotionally invested in just like 10 minutes ago, now it seemed like a very small thing. It mattered, of course, it was my sister, um, but for goodness sakes, it was a junior high girls basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm walking to the car and I'm realizing I'm embarrassed, I'm realizing I've probably embarrassed my parents, uh, my sister clearly heard what I was saying. And, and now the score and the ref and the game and all that stuff, it just felt like just this little tiny part of life, right? And I'd been acting like it was the whole world. Are you kidding me? You know, the stuff we say. Oh, my gosh. It was so bad. It was, it, this kind of behavior is, it's, uh, and this lack of perspective, which I'm trying to get at. It's so divisive. It's so destructive. It's so skewed in terms of reality. 
Um, and because I dove into this sort of swirling chaos of emotions and words, I got swept into this alternative reality where that's all that mattered. That's all I was thinking about, right? That mattered more than anything else mattered. Anybody feel like that's kind of what has happened to a lot of us over the last few weeks in our culture, right? Some of us have just, we're just, it's all that we're, it's like we've, we have been living on a diet of Facebook rants and Fox News. That's what we've been doing. And so we just, this is what matters. Are you kidding me? We're like screaming and yelling. And it's like, I started playing a game with myself where I turn on the radio in my car and I count the number of words that somebody says before the word Trump. It's a really fun game. You should play it. Yeah. It's constant. It doesn't stop. It's still going. Aren't we glad it's over? It's not over. It's not over. It's all we're hearing, but it is not the whole world. It feels like it's the whole world. It's not the whole world. It's just a real, it's kind of like a really well-publicized junior high girls basketball game. That's what it's like, right? <laughs> oh. Somebody pointed out to me recently how so much of the news, so much of the news is really just opinions. And, and here's the thing, we don't need more of them. It's like we're done. My opinion is we don't need any more opinions going around. <laughs> We need more actions, right? We need more love in action. Can that, can that, does that resonate with anybody? Like, let's all go to Missouri and start saying, show me. I think they're the show me state. Uh, but we want to see some actions. Uh, that's why I say we need to rise above the rhetoric. Less, what do you think about? And more, what are you doing about, right? Less, what's your view on? And more, what are you doing about? So what if we rose above the rhetoric? What if we stopped yelling at that guy on the other side of the little mini junior high uh, basketball gym? What if we loved one another? There's a concept. What if we loved one another? I have friends, including some of you in this community, who disagree with me, or I disagree with them, on what are considered hot political kind of touch-button uh, issues. But it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter not because those issues are not important, because they are. And it doesn't matter because we don't care, because we do. Uh, but it doesn't matter because there are things that matter more. That's the bottom line, right? Uh, specifically, our shared love for Jesus and our shared love for one another. And these relationships are so enriching to me. A, because we're not avoiding the topics about which we disagree and settling for this shallow relationship. And B, we're not worried about abandonment. We're not worried about, oh man, if I say this, he's not going to be my friend anymore. He's just going to leave. So there's this great stability and great security as well as this great honesty. And really what's happening is we're just choosing to love each other. That's what's happening. So uh, we can actually say to one another, why did you, why, why did you vote for that person? Um, and we're not looking for an argument or a debate or a soundbite, we're looking for something deeper than that. What are you, ho what are you hoping for? Um, what are you concerned about? What, um, what are you angry about? What makes you angry? What, what are your concerns about your kids? I want to know. I want to understand so I, can, so I can love you more, love you better. So to experience the peace of Christ in the church, we just simply, we got to see it as just a, a mess of words, and we got to rise above it. we got to rise above the rhetoric. Something's got to matter more. Something's got to matter more. And secondly, in order to be able to offer the peace of Christ to others, I want to say we need to work below the radar. 
We need to work below the radar. So we need to rise above, get above the words. We need to be able to see the bigger picture. It is not all about this game. And then we need to work below the radar. By that, we need to let our actions tell the story. We need to let our actions reveal the power of the gospel. I recently read this article by this woman named Karen Ellis. She's working on her PhD at Oxford, and she's studying Christian communities that are thriving in contexts that are hostile to Christians and hostile to Christianity. And she's a really articulate writer, and she's really... Uh, so she's got my ear, and I just want to share with you something that she wrote on this topic. Being a Christian in a context that feels hostile to Christianity. She says this, the Christian's answer to this hostile, hostility, uh, the Christian's answer to this hostility with what I describe as productive perseverance working through community. They are filled with a deep hope in Christ that drives out fear of man, and their lives are often marked by radical personal transformation and a communal discipleship that it is so attractive, others risk stigmatization to know it. Christians there establish new families by welcoming young converts into their homes for several months. These young believers are protected from social pressure and prepared to face the negative public opinion once they return to society. They also learn agricultural or trade-oriented skills, as well as biblical business principles. These skills help them make a living if they can't obtain work due to their faith. In addition, such mentoring enables these men and women to bring a life-affirming influence, a life-affirming influence into the broader stream of everyday life. That witness, get this, that witness is more than countercultural because of its biblical orientation, it is other cultural. That is really, really good. What is she talking about? She's talking about effective Christian witness in places where anti Christian hostility is so strong and so real that Christians don't just face negative public opinion which I would say is maybe some of the stuff that some of us feel like we're uh, facing. But also, it goes far beyond that. They're losing their jobs and they're getting ostracized from their family. So how does this effective Christian witness happen? Well, Christians aren't arguing with each other. Instead, they're loving each other. Their love is, um, and, and I love this, their witness isn't countercultural. Their witness is other cultural. In other words, they're not fighting against the culture. Could we please get beyond that? They're not fighting against the culture. What they're doing is they're offering a new and true alternative. And this is so attractive. This is so remarkable. This is so different. It takes people who think you're going to fight with them, and it's like, oh, you're not going to fight with me? You're just going to offer something different? And it, and it changes the whole game. And somehow this persecution that is... Uh, so real, has, has taken them to this level. In other words, the Christians she's writing about are actually living as if Jesus is Lord and as if Jesus saves. And therefore, they're actually experiencing the kingdom of God or this other culture, which is the peace of Christ. That's what they're experiencing, the peace of Christ. She goes on. Let me read a little bit more. Though despised, biblical Christians in Muslim-majority cultures are often known for their compassion and care. Muslims, weary of the brutality of radical Islam, 
are turning to Christ in startling numbers, attracted by a community that has tangibly proven. Do you know what the word tangibly means? Like you can touch it. Attracted by a community which has tangibly proven that the church is not an enemy but a friend. As a result, new communities grow even under hostility. A little more. The life and history of the church proves that there will always be those who wish to pursue a radical, transformative gospel. This presupposes a supportive community that can speak boldly into the life of such a seeker. For those who want to live counter to the prevailing culture, in spite of the social sacrifices involved, these communities become a powerful and safe haven where no previous life is beyond transformation. Isn't that good? Where no previous life, no, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've been. Because no previous life is beyond transformation. Perhaps all this has implications for our religious freedom struggles. When speech is restricted by popular opinion or legislation, the quiet witness of such Christian communities speaks loudly. Isn't that good? It's really good. What is she talking about? She's talking about working below the radar. That's what she's talking about. She's talking about being subversive. She's not talking about, let me tell you what I'm going to do and advocate so loudly for it that that becomes my focus. Let me just get after the business of being the church, right? What if we took the time that we spent adding to this massive pile of opinions? What if we spent the energy that we spent worrying about this legislation or this law or this candidate? What if we used all that time and energy to actually work for the restoration of all things here in this local context? I'm, gonna, I'm working on a sermon for January where I'm going to talk more specifically about how we do that. We're going to talk about specific roles that we could take uh, in this community, official positions in some cases that might actually be ways that we could change and, and, and affect this place for good. What if Emmaus Church became a community that tangibly proves to our cities, to our neighborhoods, to those who feel like the Christian church has been hostile to them, that the church is not an enemy, the church is a friend? What if we sacrificed so that this community became known as a powerful and safe haven, so much so that no previous life is beyond transformation? What if our quiet witness could speak loudly as we worked below the radar to restore all things? What if we could rise above the rhetoric? What if we could work below the radar? May we experience the peace of Christ in this church. Not by saying our differences don't matter, because they do. And not by saying uh, that uh, they're not worth discussing, because they are. But what if we could experience the peace of Christ in this church? And then what if we could offer the peace of Christ to the world? That's what I want to be part of, right? That's what I want to do. I want to get out of the gym where we're all yelling, and I want to offer something that actually makes a difference. Let's pray together. We're grateful, Lord, for your love, for your continually challenging call to love. Uh, this, I feel like it's such a simple thing that I overlook it, uh, but everything just keeps pointing me back to it. So I pray for the grace that I need to love people. 
And I pray that this church could be honest and real and passionate and driven and full of activists, but mostly full of love. As we say, you know, we disagree on a bunch of stuff, but we agree that Jesus is Lord. So let's start there and then let's love each other. And I mostly, God, I, beyond that, I guess, I pray that we would be enabled by your spirit to extend love to those around us. This week, around a dinner table with family and friends, this year and next, as we move into downtown and have new opportunities to reach out to a, God, to, to a community that thinks they know what our message is probably like, what we think, may we surprise and subvert the situation by demonstrating a gospel of love where no life is beyond transformation, where the church is a friend and not an enemy. I pray for your help in this, Jesus. Amen. Amen.